Well, that was a great, whoever picked that song, thank you, because that has a little bit to do with what we're going to be talking about tonight. I'm going to tell you a story first to begin off with. In the late 1980s, I was on board the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower. It's a nuclear carrier. And we pulled into Liberno, Italy. And uh, that's, uh, for in our case, you have to anchor way out. We can't pull up to the piers because we carry weapons we can neither confirm nor deny. So we have to anchor out. And then we have these little small boats that if the weather's bad, you'll get pretty sick on your way to the shore. Got to there, they dropped us off at a U.S. Army base. From there, we went out of the base, went down to the local train station, and took a train to the city of Pisa. Does anybody have any idea of anything famous in the city of Pisa in Italy? There might be something there. It's called the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And while we were there, uh, by the way, the Pisa comes from the Greek word meaning marshy ground. So, you know, that kind of shows you whoever had the bright idea to build this. Um, the current example of that is Centralia Chehalis, which is built on what used to be called Sutter Swamp. You know, so it, you know, 500 years later, 800 years later, it still doesn't mean anything. The tower was started in 1173 and completed in 1399. Construction was interrupted several times by wars, debt, and while engineers worked on solutions to correct the lean. We know now that without these interruptions that allowed the soil to compress under the tower, it would have certainly fallen over. The lean first noted was first noted when the first three of the tower's eight stories had been built resulted from the foundation stones being laid on soft ground consisting of clay, fine sand, and shells. The next stories were built slightly taller on the short side of the tower in an attempt to compensate for the lean. However, the extra weight of these extra floors caused this edifice to sink further and lean more. So every one of us, when we got there, took our turns, you know, as you're standing out there and you're trying to position your hands to make it look like you're holding it up, you know, we had to all take those uh, pictures. And back when we were there, you're actually allowed to go into it. And you have this little narrow steps and you go, and it's just going around and around the inside about halfway up. There's an area where you get out. Well, you could get out, but except it's, it, it was blocked off so you couldn't. And then you go all the way up the top and then you could look down. Um, from there on both sides. Um, and then when we came back two years later, they had closed it down. Nobody was allowed to go up in the Leaning Tower piece anymore. And it stayed that way all the way up until about uh, 2001. And they did work from 1990 to 2001 to try to get that solidified to stop the lean. In 2002, they reopened up uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And by May 2008, the sensors they have installed in there showed that the tower had become stable and stopped moving. And so now they expect that the Leaning Tower piece will last another 200 years based on if nothing else changes tectonically. And so one of the things I want to start off with is thinking about a foundation. And a foundation is as the start or the beginning of something. And um, when we think about that, I want you to also think about it's a base structure of a building. So it has a couple different meanings of how we use the word in Scripture. And the part we're going to think about a little bit as a building is when uh, Paul told us that he was the wise master builder and that everything else in our Christian life is supposed to be built on top of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation. And so I know your pastor here has told you Jesus Christ plus anything equals damnation. Maybe not in that exact way, but if you try to attach anything to the foundation of Jesus Christ for your salvation, you're going to hell. It doesn't matter how loud you proclaim Jesus Christ, if you're attaching works, baptism, church membership, fill in the blank with whatever your mind can dream of, 
you are damned and you are going to go to hell unless you change from that. That foundation is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So when we sing things like Jesus paid it all, you're right. He paid it all. There's nothing I can do to pay for it. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later. But it's really important for us sometimes to go back and look at some of those foundational things. And we're going to look at one of them tonight. I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 46. In Luke 6, 46, it says, it's the Lord speaking. He says, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it for it was founded on a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that... Without a foundation built in house upon the earth against which the stream did be vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. And when we think of this, understand the foundation has a whole bunch of purposes when you build a house. Now, I'm not a construction guy, so do not come look at me afterwards wanting any foundation advice, any building advice. I can only probably tell you the wrong way to do it. But I do understand that foundations have three primary purposes. The first one is to to support the entire load of whatever the building is that's going to be built on top of it. So that means how tall it is, how far out it goes, different roof lines, all that kind of stuff. All that load has to be designed into when you build that foundation. And when you have a well-designed and strong foundation, it keeps the building standing when the forces of nature wreak having on it. So whether that's flooding, like we have here all the time, uh, whether that's windstorms, which we have periodically, um, whatever tornadoes, hurricanes, whatever those are, how you build that foundation is what's going to keep it safe during those kinds of things. And it also must be built so that it keeps the ground moisture from seeping in and wrecking that foundation. So there's a whole bunch of things that foundation has to do. According to construction experts and engineers, the foundation must be able to stand the dead load and the live loads. The dead load is the weight or the load of a basic structure itself because it remains constant. It doesn't change. And the second part is the live load, which is the weight of the people and the other objects they bring with them and rearranging things. So if you move in, maybe your wife might have you move, say, this chair over there and then over there and maybe over there and a couch. And then there's pillows to put wherever things are going or whatever else. And, you know, you have those things do. Things get moved all the way around. That foundation needs to support that and be designed for that. And so... When we look at all of this stuff, we have to understand that the foundation is customized. It's personal. One of the things about a foundation is I don't know how every one of you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. All I can tell you is what happened to me. I was a five-year-old boy watching um, um, uh, Billy Graham on TV in Glasgow, Montana. Uh, probably most of you have no clue where Glasgow, Montana is. It's up in the northeast end of the corner. And the only fame it had is it used to have an Air Force base. Now the whole area is all rich people from Hollywood bought all out the land and nobody can live there that used to live there. Because um, it was not a rich, fancy place when I was there. Uh, but nonetheless, I got saved there as a young person. We have people in our church and a lot of other people I met, they didn't get saved at five years old. They may get saved at a much later age. You know, we've had people that have been in their 60s and 70s who get saved. 
That foundation of Jesus Christ is different for each person. It's customized that person. It's not a one-size-fit-all. That's the nice thing about our Savior. So I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because it's important that you don't just believe me, we need to look what the scripture says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10, it's Paul, and he's saying, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is what? Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And this is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. When you get saved, you start off with the foundation. The rest of the building's up to you. You get to decide whether it's wood, hay, and stubble. That's the things you did in your flesh for you. That's the things that you did supposedly for the Lord, but they were really for you. Versus the precious metals and and um, jewels, that's saving souls. That's doing what the Lord asks you to do. That might be praying for somebody. That might be witnessing to somebody. Doing the things that you do for the Lord as unto the Lord, not that you want to get anything out of it. That's your part of the building program. And I want you to turn to 2 Timothy 2.19, and then we're going to get into the main part of the message. 2 Timothy 2.19. And this, once again, is Apostle Paul. He's talking to Timothy, his son, in the figurative sense, as his son in the ministry. And he's saying, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal... The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you're saved, God knows who you are. By the way, if you're not saved, God still knows who you are. He still knows the number of hairs that you have on your head. He knows everything that you've said that's come out of your mouth or passed through your mind as a thought. He knows it all. That's the amazing thing about our God, because I have a hard enough time keeping up with my own brain. To imagine that there's a God that's everywhere, omnipresent, knows everything, has all power, is an amazing thing that's very hard for me to comprehend as a human being. And so I'd like you to turn over to John chapter 6, verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. John chapter 6 and verse 37. And this is the Lord speaking, and he's saying, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise what? Okay, so Jesus Christ says, if you come to him, and you come to him with an open heart, he says, I'm not going to cast you away. You're going to come, and I'm going to accept you. So that means it doesn't matter who you are, how bad of an evil, wicked person you are, no matter what horrible things you've ever done for your life, if you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ and asked him to please save you, he will. But it has to be done from the heart, not from the head. That's the important difference. Not So one of the things that we get out of this, God promises, or Lord Jesus Christ in this case promises, if you come to him, he's not going to throw you out of the family. 
I mean, let's face it. There's a lot of families that in this world that exist today where people are cast out of their families. They're not welcome to come back home anymore. They're not welcomed by the aunts and uncles. They're not welcomed by the cousins and the siblings. And that's an unfortunate thing, but that's the truth. I have some step-siblings that I've never met any of them. And only one of them actually had any desire at all to even talk to me. That's not uncommon, unfortunately, in this world that we live in today. But God's not that way. Once you're part of his family, you're in. You know, it's kind of like the old saying, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. All right? God, when he paid that price for you on the cross and paid it all, he says, I don't care what you do the rest of your life. Even if you are a complete shipwreck out of it, if you came to me first and accepted me as your savior, you're in. You're part of my family. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have surety of God and his promises. But the next thing that comes along is if we think about that is, well, God won't make me lose my salvation. But what if I can do it? What if there's some way that I can lose my salvation? And I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. Now, probably all of you or most of you know these verses. Um, this is probably nothing new to you, but I think sometimes it's needful to go back and, and review things because you may have the opportunity to talk to somebody else about things like this. Amen. So in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we're going to read, it says, For by what? Grace are ye saved through faith, and that is not of what? Yourselves. You had nothing to do with it yourselves it is the what gift so um i'm picking this so if i come up to somebody and i say hey this is a gift it's attractive it's whatever they can choose to take it or not right well god says if you take that gift you've now changed families if you accept the lord jesus christ your family's changed you were in the family of the devil because of your sin but now you chose to take the gift but you don't have to. That's a lot of times we go out and we witness to people. We pass out tracts, whatever it is we do. You're trying to give them the gift. They're like, oh, I don't want that. Ooh, that's scary. Oh, I don't want that. I know some Christians and I don't want to be like them. Whatever the excuse may be, it doesn't matter what the excuse is. Because the reality, whatever they don't like, it's not Jesus Christ's fault. You know, there are people that don't want to come back to church. Well, who are you blaming? You may be upset at brother or sister so-and-so, but the reality is, what did Jesus Christ ever do to you? He died up on that cross for you. Even if you reject him your entire life and spend eternity in hell, he still went up on that cross for you. And he's given out that free gift. You just got to take it. But that's a personal choice to take that gift or not. Grace is defined as God's unmerited favor. It is God doing for you what you cannot do yourself. So this means that you cannot save yourself by good works. You can't save yourself by baptism. You can't save yourself by living a good life. You can't uh, save yourself by having more good than bad. All these things that people fill in the blank with whatever you want to hear. Uh, whatever you've heard from talking to people, right? You can just fill in the blank here. It doesn't matter what that is. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And we're going to look in verse 20. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the what? Law. There shall no flesh be what? Justified in his sight. You cannot keep the law perfectly. 
Therefore, you cannot be justified. Because here's the thing about the law. If you go down the road and you get stopped for speeding, you broke the law. Period. Now, if you're a guy, that means you're getting the ticket. If you're a girl, you can bat your eyelashes, smile, whatever it is. I don't, I have no idea what this experience is because I've never had it. It's, it's pulled over. It's time for a ticket kind of thing. And hey, I deserve it. I broke the law. You can't unbreak the law once you broke it. There's a penalty that goes with that. And God says the penalty of breaking his law is death. So if we want, don't want to have to deal with that whole death issue, there's only one way out and that's his way. Because he's already said, all it takes is one sin. Now, let's face it. None of us have to worry about that. Unless you're like four, five, six, seven years old, and you commit your first sin, and then God decides to take you home after you get saved, you're never going to have this problem. Because some sin is going to be besetting to you. You're going to have some kind of problem. Maybe you're a Norwegian like I am, and your besetting sin is, well, when you get mad, you get really angry. Um, you know, whatever yours is. We all have those things that are very hard for us and difficult for us to work on, and we need the Lord Jesus Christ to help us on those. In Titus 3.5, it says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. All of the great works, it doesn't matter what I do. I can be Mother Teresa and give my life and every dime I've ever had and give it to the Lord, and God says, you're still going to hell just as bad as any other sinner. Why? Because you rejected my son. You, you rejected the free gift. And we have people that because of pride or whatever else, they're like, well, if I can't do it my way, I'm not going to do it. That's very sad. It's tragic. So now that we know the good works can't do anything to earn your salvation, then evil works can't do anything to remove your salvation because works have nothing to do with salvation. Other than I talked to you this morning when I said, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. The works that you should do that come out of you from the inside out, God's like a microwave. He doesn't barbecue you from the outside in. It's the other way around. He's like a microwave. He cooks you from the inside out. God is not interested in seeing everybody in this church wear a suit and a tie. What God's interested in is what's your heart. Because if he can get your heart, everything else will take care of itself in time. And one of the tragic things we have, especially in the Baptist circles, we have Baptist churches and, and other like denominations that have this concept that, well, we just have this little box and everybody needs to fit in this box and act this way and talk this way and all this other stuff. It's like, let's face it, we don't all talk the same. I mean, you get somebody from the South, you get me from North Dakota, you get somebody from the Pacific Northwest, we don't all talk the same. You know, we have little different sayings we have that don't correlate. Now, I lived in the South, so I definitely understand what it means, bless your little pea-picking heart, and other things like that. I understand those. Why? I did live down South, so I got to hear some of them. Sometimes they were in my direction. Um, sometimes not. But I learned those things. Because why? We're individuals. No two of us are alike. You can have a set of twins, and guess what? They can be identical, and they're still not identical. God knows the difference. God understands the difference. So I want you to turn over to Ephesians, or back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So in order to lose your salvation, you have to believe the faith of Christ is faulty. I want you to hear what I'm saying. In order to lose your salvation, you have to believe the faith of Jesus Christ, not your faith, the faith that Jesus Christ has is faulty. That's what you have to believe. In Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, we read that it says, For grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of 
God. It's not because you miraculously had enough faith that God decided to save you. It is not because you cleaned up your life to meet some artificial bar that some religious person gave you that God saved you. He saved you as a gift that he sacrificed on that cross for you as an individual, regardless of how old you are or how young you are, in your life, he paid it all. So we're saved through grace and through faith, but that faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. I want you to turn over to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Or actually, no, uh, let's skip past that. I want to be mindful of the time tonight. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 3, verse 22. Romans chapter 3, verse 22. And it says, even the righteousness of God, is that my righteousness? Is that your righteousness? No, it's the righteousness of God, which is by what? What's the next word? Is it your faith that's mentioned in this verse? No, it's the faith of Jesus Christ. Your faith, no matter how good it is in the Lord Jesus Christ, is not enough. Jesus Christ has to stand in the gap and fill up that faith. We need help. It's like the old saying, there are some people that say, well, you know, Jesus Christ, he's just a crutch to get you to heaven. Oh, no, he's not. He's the ambulance and the stretcher because you can't even crawl your way into heaven. Right? So we have to understand something. It's the faith of Jesus Christ that does the work for us. It's the righteousness of God received on the basis of the faith of Jesus Christ. This faith is given unto all and upon all that believe in Philippians 3.9. So although you must believe to the best of your ability, the perfect faith which provides salvation is the faith of Christ, not your faith in Christ. This means that there's no need to pray through or hold on or preserve to the end or speak in tongues or whatever else that you want to do. We come to God in a simple belief, a childlike faith. And he completes our faulty faith and does the transaction. Why? Because our faith falters. I can tell you honestly, as being as old as I am now, there are times my faith has not been as strong as it should have been. There are times where God knows that I should have been stronger than I was, where, you know, God, I really want to believe you, and I really want to trust you, and I know that there's there's a promise in this Bible, but really, it wasn't there. So my faith is never going to be enough to keep me saved. The next thing people will deal with is dealing with imputed righteousness. Now, impute means, in the simple way to think of it, it's it's something you're giving to somebody else. He's taking the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he's imputing it. He's giving it to you in a legal sense. Think of a lawyer writing up a document, because, let's face it, most of us are not going to use this big of words if we don't have to. But imputed righteousness means he's taking the righteousness of Christ, who's perfect, and he's applying it to your account. So when the God looks down at you from heaven, you look like Jesus Christ. You're perfect. You're sinless. Now, there is a proviso here. You're not really sinless, right? Because we still have this flesh within us that wants to do all sorts of bad things. But when we got saved, God does an operation, the circumcision done without hands that separates our soul from our flesh. That means all the sins that the soul does does not get applied to our soul. 
Our flesh, no matter what it does, it lusts after things, it does things, it does not get to apply to our account because he separated us, he circumcised us from the flesh. And he took that soul and he welded it to his Holy Spirit so that when you die, you go up. You get to go to the good place. You get to sing some uh, hosannas with a voice that I don't have right now and praise God, I'm not the one leading songs because the rest of you would be running in fear. <laughs> Let's turn over to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him that knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus Christ had to take your sin. He had to bear it upon his body as a sinner, and he had to take it to hell and put it in hell, because that's where sins go in order for you to be able to get saved. Because you need somebody to pay that sin burden, that sin debt. We can't pay it. I could never, even if I lived a thousand years, you know, live like Methuselah, and I, and I lived real, pretty good for the most of my life, it's never going to be enough to pay the debt I already pay, plus all the other stuff that's going on. And so the Bible's very clear that God the Father made God the Son, the one who knew no sin, to be sin for us. He, Christ took all of our sins and he accepted them to be the payment for you and me. Because that's really when it gets down to the crux of it is, who's taking care of those sins? Is it me or is it God? And if it's me, I'm in trouble. Because I can't deal with my sin problem. There's no way for me to magically wave a wand or recant some Bible verses or go get baptized or anything to do to wash away those sins. They're still there. They're still stuck to me. The only way I can get rid of them is through Jesus Christ. And so God says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and all these other big words, you know, that have evocation type stuff on the end of them, that all do with what happens to the second your heart. It doesn't even have to be you speaking in your mind and your heart. When that combination goes, please, Lord, save me. Before the words even come out of your mouth, you're already saved. And God does this huge long list of things to do, like sanctification, to be set apart. That's like when uh, churches buy pianos, they say, you know what? We're sanctifying this. We're setting this apart to be different. We're only going to use this for holy and worshipful things. It's not like it's going to, it was before because, you know, when they made it, it could be used for whatever. But no, we're going to do this to be glorifying and honoring to Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. We're now set apart. We're not like we used to be. We're sanctified. We're supposed to be set as for the master's use, whatever that might be. So when God sees you, he sees you through the blood of Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if any of you ever had kids and taught them, one of the things that you can do is you can take a red piece of paper and a red filter or like a red piece of plastic. If you look through that red plastic at a red piece of paper, what color do you see? Anybody know? White. Just like when the Lord looks through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and he looks at you filthy with red sin all over you, you're white. You're white. 
You're clean. You're pure. And hey, there's nothing cuter than little lambs we have down the road. They have little lambs and the, you know, the little cows when they come out and they're just so bright white. You know, they're, and you see them running around. It's, it's great. But you wait a couple weeks, maybe a month. They're not so cute anymore and they're not bright white anymore. And that's a whole nother story. Like the first time you care, you bring your child home and they get, they don't give you a checklist at the hospital. You know, what are they thinking? I want you to turn over to Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. And here Paul's talking, he says, And be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is in God by faith. And Paul's talking here, and he also talks over in Colossians Colossians 2.10, that we are complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look through this, we understand that we can't become lost because somehow we lose our righteousness. It's not our righteousness that has anything to do with the picture. And that's an important thing to remember because so many people are trying to dress up and talk right and do right. And they live in fear of all these laws and rules and, and things that some churches produce. Why? Because they don't understand the fact it's not you. It's him. On top of that, can the pardon be removed for your sins? God pardoned your sins. Pardons are an amazing thing. The president can do it. The governor can do it. It says, doesn't matter what the crime is. They can go, pardon, gone, doesn't exist. It's as if it never existed. That's an amazing thing that no one, we can sit there and God can go to us and he's talking to us. Don't do it. And what do we do? We do it anyways. And then we come back later to the Lord and like, okay, Lord, I'm sorry. I messed up. Does that house somehow make me saved again? No. It doesn't matter about my own personal righteousness, my own personal works. It doesn't have anything to do with it. Now, I need to get it right. That's called fellowship. That fellowship is I want to have a close relationship with the Lord. You know, it's like when you're driving and something bad happens, you're like, oh, Lord, You want to have a good relationship with the Lord when you're doing one of those kind of prayers. Oh, Lord, save me from stupid me, right? You don't want to go, oh, Lord, I have not been living right, and I've been doing all the right things and have to go through this long prayer to restore that fellowship to then get to the Lord and go, please save me. And if you're, you know, like I was as an early 20-something, I didn't do that. But I can tell you what, I was sure thinking, oh, Lord, please save me. Did he still listen to me? Absolutely. But is that the way it should be? No, it should be no different than a mom and dad. When you mess up as a kid, do your kids, do your parents love you? Yeah, or they should. Do they agree with what you did wrong? No. Are they going to say, it's okay? No, they shouldn't if they really love you. What are they waiting for? You come back and look, I'm sorry. And go, mom, dad, I messed up. I made a bad decision. I know it's wrong. Please forgive me. You never changed who your mom and dad were just because you did something wrong. God's the same way. Just because you mess up, and let's face it, if that was the condition, then we might as well all go home. There's no point being here for any of us. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Then it continues on. 
Not yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered in the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, he paid for all the sins you've ever committed in your life. But as we talked before, you've got to accept that gift. When you accept the gift, you've got the greatest monopoly get out of jail free card ever made. Because God says, no matter how stupid, boneheaded of a teenager you are, or a 20 something or an 80 something year old person, God's what? I'm still not going to take my love away from you. You're still my child and you're still going to go to heaven. Now you may have a rotten testimony. You may have no rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. You may lose your inheritance, but you're still going to go to heaven. Why? Because you were quickened together with the Lord Jesus Christ. You are part of his body. When we studied the Bible, one of the things it talks about is a church body and save people. We're all part of the body of Christ. So if God is going to rip you out of the body of Christ, he has to maim and disfigure the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that's kind of a weird way to think of it, but I want you to think about what he's talking about, that you are, if you're saved, you're part of the bride of Christ, you're also part of his body. You are one in him. All of us are one in him. And he wants to use us, and he describes to us as the church, of being a body that has all these different members. All of us have different talents, skills, and capabilities, and God wants to use them to do different things. And he says, don't get hang up. Hey, there's somebody up front. Don't want to be them unless God wants you to be that person. You know, uh, being a pastor has its benefits and its drawbacks. I'm sure, I mean, I've gone to the hospital a couple times with some other people to try to be a blessing to them while they're watching a grandfather or a father or a mother die. That's a hard thing to do. And do it over and over and over and over. It also includes going to somebody who's lost and they're dying and you're trying to witness to them And what do you get? I did that with my grandpa. I don't know if he ever got saved. The last things I sat to him is I walked him through the plan of salvation when he was no longer able to talk or open his eyes. I don't know if he heard me, but I wanted to give him one more chance. I want to see my grandpa in heaven. Will I? I don't know. Maybe he got saved as a young person and just got messed up all later. I don't know. But that takes a toll. That's hard because you have to continually give yourself and you're weeping with those that weep. Hey, you get to rejoice when people rejoice. People get married. People have kids. All the good things in life, you get to rejoice too. But there is the other side. As we continue on, we are to be forgiving to others, present tense, as God hath forgiven us, past tense. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. This is one of the reasons why people who do not have, who don't care what Bible version they read, this is one of the examples here when we read this verse, why it is so important. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake, what's the next word? Hath. What does hath mean? Past tense. God, all the way back when you got saved, 
forgave you for it all. Even knowing that you're still going to mess up and do all the other stuff, God forgave you for all of that. And he says, because I forgave you in the past, it says here, I want you to be kind. I want you to be tenderhearted. I want you to forgive other people when they do stuff against you. Guess what? That could be the brethren. That church-wise or in your family. That could be your coworkers. That could be somebody you meet at Walmart. Maybe the Walmart greeter isn't the happiest, go-lucky person you've ever met in your life. You know, maybe they're a very cranky, cranky ex-cab driver. Uh, you know, you don't know who you're going to meet. But God says, remember what I did for you. Remember what I did on the cross. And because of that, if you think on that, it's going to make it a lot easier for you to go, Lord, I really don't like this person. But go, Lord, please help me because I know it's the right thing to do. I know, Lord, that I need to let this go and I need to give this back to you and help me with that. So one of the other things that also shows us is that there's no need to con- go back continually and, and get prayed up over everything. You know, did you lose your salvation? Oh, I'll go get it back again, right? I need to pray to get that back. And there's, unfortunately, you know, if you want to, there's a book and a uh, verse in Hebrews that tells you, look, if you lost it, you can't get it back. But it's so much more than that is, look, Christ only paid that price once. He's not doing it again. You either believe the book and you did what he, God said you to do and you believe what God said, or you're saying God's a liar. That's as simple as it gets. And I know that sometimes is a little bit hard and a little bit difficult. And that's not the way I would try to express it to somebody if I was witnessing to them. But that is the element of truth is when we talk to them is the fact that if you're witnessing to them about all of this, it's not going back and going back and going back. You're either part of the family or not. You're not coming back to God going, please let me back in your family. You know, I messed up. So you got rid of me. Let me back in. God says, no, you're in the family. You may be a wayward one. You may be one of those great uncles or cousins or whatever else that, you know, is the story of the family. Let me tell you about, you know, so-and-so, that kind of a thing. So we receive a full pardon at salvation. We cannot become lost because we committed unpardoned sins. There are no unpardonable sins for a Christian in this day and age. The only unpardonable sin, according to the Bible, is if you were alive at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and you went up to him and you told him you have an unclean spirit, God says, that's it. You're done. We can't do that now. Jesus Christ isn't on the earth walking around for now for us to be able to even do that. And yet we have people who are afraid of some unpardonable sin and they don't even know what it is. That's why the Bible is such a helpful thing. We're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to protect us. Let's turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Now this is in verse 11, it says, Paul saying, where am I appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher to the Gentiles? That's most of us, Gentiles. Uh, that means we're not Jewish. Where to, uh, uh, sorry, verse 12, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul's saying, look, I got saved. I've learned all these things from the Lord and everything else, but I'm trusting the Lord to get me to the other side. I'm not trusting in me. And if Paul can't trust in him, look at all the things that he did. I mean, let's face it. If Paul was the standard, I've already lost. And Paul says, I don't even trust the things that I did. And he's saying, I'm trusting the Lord to get me to the other side. 
then we have to do the same thing. So God's committed to keeping our soul to the end. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 8, because I want to give you more than one verse. 1 Corinthians 1, 8. And once again, verse 7 gives us the context, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, who, being the Lord Jesus Christ from verse 7, also confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless and day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are going to heaven because God is going to count you legally as blameless. Your sins are gone. They're not, they were judged at, at the cross. Now your works. Oh, that's a whole different judgment. That's a whole different thing. God's going to judge that later, but he's going to confirm you until the end. Therefore, you cannot become lost by failing in some commitment to Christ because your salvation is based on the commitment of God. And let's face it, no matter how much I love and I care for people, my commitments to people will never match what God's are. I may always try to follow through with my promises, but I'm going to fail. God doesn't. And that's the amazing thing from him. And the last thing um, on this I want you to look at is in Ephesians chapter 113. Ephesians 113. In Ephesians 113, well, once again, looking at verse 12, it says, Who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after ye that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So God says he seals you. Now, does anybody here remember how seals used to work in Bible times? Seals were a way to do all sorts of different things. So what a lot of kings would do is they'd make some, they'd have some scroll on it that have commandments, rules, messages, whatever else, and he'd place his seal on it. And a lot of the other times they would place a second seal, which tells you who can open it. So that seal dictated who could open it. So the king could seal it and say, hey, anybody like a governor, you can open this. But a regular person couldn't open that legally. So God says he's going to take you. He's going to seal you by the Holy Spirit. So the question is, if God seals you with the Holy Spirit, who's going to break that seal? That's God putting a seal on you. That's Almighty God saying, you are my child. I'm putting my Holy Spirit in you, and there's nothing you can do to ever lose this. And why? Because he says he's going to seal you. Well, let's read the verse. The next verse we need to look at. Uh, let's go down to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Ephesians 4, 30. It says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Once God seals you, you stay sealed until it's time for you to go home. And that's an amazing thing that God says, you know what? I gave you an earnest on all this salvation stuff. Yeah, I gave you a whole bunch of sanctification, all this other stuff. Because I also gave you the Holy Spirit that can minister to you, that can uplift you, that can encourage you, that can strengthen you. And one of the other things he does is he puts a seal on you so that the devil and no other thing can ever, ever, ever break that seal. Because that's God's seal. And the devil may be the most second most powerful entity in the universe as we understand it, but he's not God. And his end is already determined. Now, he may do all sorts of things to you once you get saved to make your life miserable. Because the last thing in the world the devil wants is a Christian who understands that he's saved and wants to see some other people get saved. 
And he'll do whatever he can to ruin that. Mess it up in any which way that's possible. So you can't become lost by breaking your promise to God because the security is based on the seal of the Holy Spirit, which is God himself. And by the way, there's this whole other word that God likes to use over and over and over again. Eternal. Everlasting. God doesn't use word. I mean, let's face it, as human beings, we have a way of phrasing things to kind of sort of make them mean something they may or may not mean or may not mean what you think they mean or, you know, in a kinder, gentler way to put something across. When God uses the word eternal, he understands what eternal means. And when God made you, he gave you a soul that is eternal. Your soul is never going away. But the question is, where is it going to stay? Because there's two ultimate decisions for us in this age that we live in. You're going to get to go to heaven and be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. Or you're going to get to go to the lake of fire and burn. That's the only two options that come out of there. And while we can look at Romans 6.23 and John 3.15 to talk about everlasting life, eternal life, that's what they are. They're not based on anything we do. Could you imagine the gall of that to sit there and write a Bible that uses the word eternal and everlasting, all this stuff? Hey, but you can lose it. That doesn't even take much at all. Just break one of God's rules. Poot, you're out. That's why we have the greatest gift of all right now in the church age where all it takes is the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to do the works. Hey, when's the last time your pastor got up here and said, okay, for all you that committed this sin, you know, I need a couple turtle doves and, you know, maybe a lamb. And, hey, they got to be without blemish. And, you know what, we're going to have a barbecue in the back and we're going to cook them and the smoke's going to up. God's going to be happy. And, by the way, if the barbecue turns out, I'm going to have a, I have a flesh hook and I'm going to grab, you know, this is my version of, you know, the Old Testament, you know, and they're a little. You ever thought about that? It's No, it's not that way. But we have people that yet that still want to go back to the law. Turn over to John chapter 10, verse 10. Well, let's turn over to John chapter 5. Let's go back, sorry. John chapter 5, verse 24. John chapter 5, verse 24. And it says, verily, verily, this is, this is Jeff's version of that. If you see that word, it means, hello, pay attention, something important's coming. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath, past tense, everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. What an amazing thing that God isn't going to condemn us for what we deserve. He's not going to condemn us for the things we're going to do in the future. They're going to be wrong. What an amazing, amazing thing. Um, One last thing. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we're going to finish here. Romans chapter 8. And we're going to read verse 35 to 39. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You got somebody who thinks they can lose their salvation. Here's a question for you from God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels 
nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature should be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the Jeff short version or long version of that verse. Death, you can't lose it when you die. Life, you can't lose it while you're living. Angels, they can't take it from you. Principalities, the government can't take it. Powers, the devil can't use things and somehow magically take away your salvation. Things present, nothing happening to you right now can ever cause you to lose your salvation. Things to come, nothing in the future will ever be able to make you lose your salvation. Height, nothing above you can cause you to lose your salvation. Depth, nothing below you can cause you to lose your salvation. And on top of that, he throws in this extra one. Oh, by the way, nor any other creature. So even if you have imaginations of whatever the devil put in your brain or you saw in a movie, it can't take away your salvation you know, either. There is no creature in the 7th, 10th, 23rd uh, you know, dimension or whatever you want to pick out that's going to be able to come and take your salvation away from you. God says it is impossible. But what if I don't feel saved? That's a you problem. That's not a God problem. God says I loved you. He's shown it over and over again, and he's going to keep showing it over and over again. But sometimes we get internal and all we think is about us, and we get our vision where we're just looking inward, and we're looking at the difficult. And I want to be honest. There are some very difficult circumstances that people go through. You get the doc, you know, the call from the doctor where they're like, hey, we need you to come in to talk to you. And then they tell you, hey, you have cancer, and you have X amount of time to live. That's not a great conversation to have. You may not feel saved right when you hear a message like that, but it never changes the fact that you are saved. Your salvation is not based on how you feel. Because, boy, if it did it, you know, there'd be some good days and maybe good weeks, but it's not going to last. It never would. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look in verse 20. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Your heart may condemn you and you may hear something from the devil, the flesh, the world, whatever it is telling you in your heart, you're not saved. God says, I know better. I know what the truth is. Don't listen to all these outside voices and things that have nothing to do with what's going on. Listen to me. Listen to what God wrote over and over. And by the way, I skipped through a whole bunch of other verses that I have for this, for sake of brevity and time. But there are more and more. And if you ever have a question about your eternal security, don't ever let that run out. Get a hold of the pastor. Get a hold of somebody else to help you make sure that you have that nailed down. There's no way that you can have joy in your life if you're constantly worried about losing your salvation. God wants you to have joy. And not only just joy, he wants you to have it more abundantly after you get saved than wherever you were before. You may have had a perfect life going on before. God wants to make it even better. Now, that doesn't say God's not going to give you trials. That doesn't mean you're not going to put yourself into situations that you shouldn't get yourself into. But none of that has any bearing on the love of God and what he's done for you. Turn over to Titus 1-2. Or actually, yeah, Titus 1-2.
Titus 1-2. And this is Paul once again talking. And it says in Titus 1-2, in the hope of what? Eternal life. Which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. Before this world was ever created, before you and any of your relatives ever existed on this earth, and I'm talking great, 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 Adam, Grandpa Adam, before he ever thought about him or anything else, this world did not exist, and God goes, I'm already going to give you eternal life. He had thought about that way before any of this other stuff started. God did not start up the system and go, oh, wait, i got I got to start making some rules now. Oh wait, I didn't think about that. That's not the God we serve. That might, that might be the God of this world. Because he's a created being. And that might be the lies that he's telling all these other people, but that's not reality. God loves you. That doesn't mean God agrees with what you're doing. God wants to save you. But that choice is always up to the individual. But once you get saved, sorry, your choice after that situation is over. You're in the family. Welcome to the family. You know, it's kind of one of those moments. Come have, you know, Thanksgiving with the turkey and, you know, a turkey with the turkey kind of thing, if, depending on your family, you know, right? You're stuck with the family. And let's face it, you might as well start getting used to being around the family now because, you know, that first thousand years in heaven is going to be a little trial for you when we're all there anyways. <laughs> now, we do have the added benefit. He's going to fix us all up and we're going to have a perfect body and our minds are going to be fixed up right and we're going to have great health perfect health that will never get sick and all these other things are going on. But I think one of the saddest things are is people get so hung up on things like eternal security and it robs their joy. It robs them from the so many other things that God has for them. How can you have love for the brethren when you can't even have love for yourself? You, we have to get by some of these foundational basic things to really be able to grow. I mean, if you want to build a building, you know, you need a foundation. Well, that's not true. You don't have to. You can. I have some relatives that have proved otherwise. But that becomes problematic later. But to do it God's way, we need his foundation, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation that can be laid but him. And the world and the devil want every other excuse of what that foundation can be or how that foundation is. But Jesus Christ says, you got to come to me. One way. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the one that matters. It doesn't matter if you get wet. The thief on the cross was never baptized. Some of us, we were sprinkled as a little kid. Guess what? That doesn't count. Some of us went to a Baptist church. We may have got dunked. You know what? That still doesn't count. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we need. In 1 John 2.25, it says, And this is the promise that he hath promised, even eternal life. That's the promise we need. You know, mom and dad's promise, kids' promise, siblings' promise, those promises don't always pan out. But God follows through in his promise, and one of the great promises he gives every single one of us is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And there are times in our life where we need that. It's going to be critical to your Christian walk that you understand that God says, I'm never leaving you. Now, you may walk away, and our fellowship may not be very good, I'm still here waiting for you because God's everywhere. It's not like we have to get down on our knees and pray and ask God, Oh God, please be close to me. Oh, he's there. He's just waiting for you, waiting to get that fellowship restored. But the fellowship, that's just the part that helps us get through this life. 
The next life's already guaranteed when we get saved. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time, and we thank you for everybody that came out tonight. I pray, Lord, you bless them for coming to hear from your word and to read from your book. I pray, Lord, that you'd minister to them, uh, encourage them and strengthen them, that you'd take them home safely, that you'd uh, give them a great day of rest if they don't have to work tomorrow and enjoy the Memorial Day holiday. And we pray this next week, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just shine upon their hearts. Lord, give them the joy and the strength of the Holy Spirit in them, Lord, to be your servants, to work for you and to serve you and be what you've called them to be. And we ask it all through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.